0: part of maturing in practice is really coming to terms with the fact that you carry it with you. You don't need a building and you don't need a statue and you don't need bells and they're lovely, but they're not there's nothing depends on any of that and I've felt that deeply enough in my own practice that I don't I have not felt particularly distressed by the lockdown from the Zen center. I've had to, you know, just pay more attention to my own stress level. Um, my busyness, which is the way that my stress level tends to express itself. is I get busy and then I miss details. So that when a student comes knocking on Zoom, generally, I can be there with them. I can be not distracted. And people are coming knocking primarily with fear and anxiety and a few aware of the fact that they are sliding into isolation and they're liking it and their people are noticing that it's hard to go outside.
1: Sally Jiko Tisdale began practicing Zen in 1983 and received lay dharma transmission in 1997 from her teacher Kyogen Carlson. She currently serves as Godo, or Head of Teaching, for Dharma Rain Zen Center in Portland, Oregon. She's written nine books, including Women of the Way, Discovering 2,500 Years of Buddhist Wisdom, and most recently, Advice for Future Corpses, A Practical Perspective on Death and Dying, which was a New York Times book critic's top 10 book of the year. Her essays have appeared in many magazines and journals, including Harper's, The New Yorker, and Tricycle. Jiko also works part-time as a registered nurse in palliative care, and is an end of life nursing educator. You are listening to Sit Breathe Bow a podcast for practitioners. Each week leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the online sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We have launched a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. And listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org studygroup. So Chico, at the time of this recording, we're, we're still in this pandemic, and your sangha is it's in the early stages of opening. I'm curious how you're engaging with uh, your students, how you're guiding them in this a new time for so many of us, uh, trying to understand where the Dharma is bringing us or what it can teach us about this moment
0: yeah and and you know, I think we're going to be in this pandemic for a long time,
1: yeah
0: um personally i I found myself repeatedly being surprised at how quickly I've adapted and how interesting it is that the world can change so dramatically and not look very different, mm. realizing that in some ways, it would almost have been less traumatic, I think if it had been a tornado, or something that changed the way the world looked. But instead, the world changed under the surface. You know, it all looks the same. Our houses look the same. We're doing lots of the same things. It's, it's relatively peaceful. And yet, everything's different. And so I'm talking to people who keep kind of coming up against that surprise of, oh, wait, oh, wait, everything wait a minute, I can't. And the underlying current of of fear uh, is very strong. And I think that also is a little invisible to a lot of us. Um, and then it rears up and takes people by surprise. Um, so, you know, my, my sangha, I'm used to seeing students every week and used to being in the Zendo frequently, and I'm on a lot of committees and organizational groups, and That all just disappeared, and we stumbled our way into figuring out how to do it online. And now we're stumbling our way into a very limited phase one opening. Uh, So I'm learning too, and I'm surprised in some ways, Ian, how how easy it is to translate things like small study groups to online. That's been successful and people seem able to engage at the same level and in the same way with a group of six or eight people studying a sutra but one-to-one uh the same questions just keep coming up what do I do with this anxiety what do I do with this fear how does this change my uh intimacy with others um what do, I, what do I do with these strong emotions? And then bang, when the protests began, it added this whole other layer. And um, I feel the level of tension is significantly higher than it was a few weeks ago in terms of dealing with strong emotion. And I've noticed the teachers have all started recasting their Dharma talks toward acknowledging very powerful emotions, acknowledging feelings of guilt and, and regret and acknowledging fear. Uh, so it's a, it's a solemn time. Um, we usually laugh a lot more in our Dharma talks and our, right. our discussions. than we have in the last few months, because I think we all, we all agree. We share the sense that this is solemn. Uh, uh, a serious time. And as I said to a friend not long ago that I really, I'm 63 now, and I expected I would probably live my life without seeing a massive cultural change. But now I think I may actually see one, a massive global cultural change. And we know, of course, that there Frequent that that's the nature of things. Everything changes, and it's the nature of culture to evolve, and it's the nature of human society to to be in constant flux. But our lives are so short and and fast that we tend not to see how much changes. I do work with some some of my clients at my job. Are um, I work with a lot of African American people in of extreme age. So I work with men and women in their nineties. And I think about what it was like to be a black boy 90 years ago, to be a black woman in the 1930s. And I, I realize they have seen massive cultural change in a way that I don't entirely appreciate. So I'm, I'm always working at being, you know, facing it, seeing it, Being aware of it and not sliding into habitual states, just because I'm still in the same living room and I'm sitting on the same couch, but remembering it's different. It's different in really deep, fundamental ways.
1: Yeah, I feel like the pandemic. You know, when you sort of pair the the pandemic and the uprising together, I I feel like you know the space that was allowed with the pandemic that it. Sort of channeled this energy
0: yeah i it it also gave room for a kind of shared anguish mm-hmm. that you know anxiety is not a good enough word for it. it really is anguish, right the sense of dashed hopes and lost expectations and just the plans and dreams that people have worked toward for many years being just destroyed almost overnight. And that's why I think in some ways it would have been easier if it had been a tornado, because you would see that damage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You, would, you would see and experience that damage in real time. And instead, it's all happening a little bit in the background. A restaurant closes and never opens again. And I realized probably an entire family and maybe many, many other people had their lives staked on that restaurant. They had all these ideas, all these plans and hopes for the future, and they're just gone. And of course, in Zen practice, we work a lot with hope and fear um, and dreaming and fantasies and expectations. But sometimes the work of the day is planning and we have to do that. Sometimes the work of the day is remembering we have to do that. So it's nothing wrong with the fact that people had made these plans. It's how we how we react. So people in my sangha who were furloughed and then terminated, and people whose school plans are on hold and who, you know, everything. Everything, everything changed. And it's so subtle. So the I think this uprising is is partly a response to this massive social anguish that we are feeling of the world we expected is gone and the world we find ourselves in is not good enough it's not okay to just let things be this way
1: yeah i'm hearing the word trauma a lot more now and i feel like the longer we stay in this the the deeper the trauma is in a way, like many of us have kind of grown accustomed. I mean, it's been several months now, right? But the long lasting effects, I mean, you're, my sister owns a restaurant and they've been hanging on, you know, and she had 40 employees. There yeah. were 40 people who earned income from her and more than half those people had to be let go. And, uh-huh. you know, she's very fortunate because her place is so popular, but on another level, it's like- even as popular as they were, they—I don't think. Yeah, I think it's going to be a long-term trauma yeah. in families.
0: My son manages a big restaurant and had to fire people—one, 50 people in a day—and, um, you know. But I think we should be careful with this word trauma. I, mm. I agree. Everybody is wounded. Anybody who's paying attention is wounded. But a wound does not have to become trauma. It's how we manage it and how we are held in our woundedness that affects whether it traumatizes us. Several years ago, I I severely cut a finger. I almost cut all of my fingers off, and in, I, I was able to just almost cut one off. But I still vividly remember watching that knife slide along my fingers, and I still can't pick that particular knife up. I was traumatized because the fear of losing my fingers just cut right. I mean, cut right through me. It did. Um, it didn't have to become a trauma, and I'm. I still wonder why. Why that wound was so frightening. But we can be wounded and heal. And I'm really trying with myself to notice. In what way am I sinking into the wound as opposed to holding the wound?
1: Mm-hmm. Does that
0: make sense? I have not had a lot of quiet time. My daughter was about to move when we went into lockdown and her new roommates refused to let her move in. So, she lived with me. For <laughs> two, she, so, my, my daughter moved in with me and lived with me for two months. At the same time, somebody went on maternity leave and I had to pick up a lot of shifts at work just to help, just to be useful. And then students were leaning on me a lot and the Zen Center needed attention. So, Suddenly, I was busier than everybody I knew. Yeah. And I'm kind of an introvert, and I love being home alone.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So it's interesting how some people feel really traumatized by, I know people who are really feeling terribly lonely, terribly hurt by the distancing, and others by their fears. I was just kind of stressed by how much I had to do. So we all are meeting it in different ways, but I think it's important to notice. Oh, this hurts. This isn't working. Um, I'm going to need to adapt. I need to do things differently, and not immediately just say, "Oh, I'm so traumatized."
1: Mm.
0: We each will take something different away, but if we face change, you know, with our eyes open and with the realization that it can be difficult, but that we have the tools with which to manage change, it doesn't have to be so difficult.
1: Yeah. And to, to I, I may be overstated it, I, I definitely feel like I've heard the word trauma more related to George Floyd, which I think the time well, of pandemic gave the time for us to to see that and to see the trauma that that actually represents. not
0: So, I mean, I just gave a, my Dharma talk last week on a concept called klesha. It means different things, but it's referring to the fundamental hard kinds of karmic effect. And, you know, greed, hate, and delusion are the fundamental kleshas. I was taught it as a kind of hardened or solidified karma and also that around which the self tries to solidify and be identified. Mm. Um, so we all have some kinds of klesha in our lives. Um, the those fundamental, really deep patterns that seem to be the self. That it's very hard. It's not like oh, I lose my temper a lot. It's I am an angry person. It's a very deeply identified kind of kind of karma. So one thing I was trying to talk about is I do think the United States is a traumatized culture. I do too. I mean, this country was founded on, on such a, a weird mix of things. It was founded on religious liberty and autonomy and mobility and tolerance and also on genocide and slavery and colonization and capitalism. And we all have inherited this mix of positives and negatives, this mix of false history and an incomplete history. And so I think as Americans, we all feel some trauma from our history. And that's probably true in every culture. I don't know of a culture that has no history that it regrets any more than any of us have a life in which we have no regrets. So I think we have to face up to the cultural clashes of racism, of bias, of inequity, of, of privilege, just as we face up to the clashes in our personal lives. So I, I agree. In that sense, I think there is real trauma. I don't think that the protests are traumatizing. I no. think they are. I think the protests are really good medicine.
1: They feel like keening to yeah. me
0: it's it, it's a lamentation in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and lamentation is a very important part of grieving it's you know it's it, it's worldwide people have various expressions of lamentation but it's it's powerful and important yeah um, it's also a way in the midst of this isolation for people to reach out to each other to reach out and be touched and be seen um, And I don't just mean physical. I worry a lot about the mm-hmm. physical proximity that people are in. And it's why I have not gone to the protests mm-hmm. because I have several risk factors. But there is a reaching out that I feel, even from my living room, of touching and agreeing we are one here. We are in this together. We are a community. We. No person cannot be part of this, even though many try. They try to absent themselves they try to be the other they try to say it's not about me or that it doesn't it's not relevant but i don't I don't think you can avoid being part of this
1: so where do you see your teaching um being guided out of this situation and you know out of all of the mix that we just talked about like what's our role as both students and and teachers in this time
0: I don't know that it's changed. I have felt really solid in my own practice. I have a lot of years at it and I have not felt particularly injured or disturbed by not being able to be in a physical Zendo. That's part of maturing in practice is really coming to terms with the fact that you carry it with you. You don't need a building and you don't need a statue and you don't need bells and they're lovely but they're not There's nothing depends on any of that. And I've felt that deeply enough in my own practice that I don't, I have not felt particularly distressed by the lockdown from the Zen center. I've had to, you know, just pay more attention to my own stress level, um, my busyness, which is the way that my stress level tends to express itself is I get busy and then I miss details. So that when a student comes knocking on Zoom generally I can be there with them. I can be not distracted. And people are coming knocking primarily with fear and anxiety and a few aware of the fact that they are sliding into isolation and they're liking it and they're people are noticing that it's hard to go outside. And so I'm, I'm always happy when students are able to say, I don't understand this, but this is what I'm seeing, that they're looking at themselves doing that self-examination and then being willing to work with it. Uh, so I don't know that it's changed a whole lot. Our koans are our koans and they're with us no matter what and you can't escape it. And if it had been a tornado, I'd still be the same the same person. So I did choose my study group. We had just finished reading Cultivating the Empty Field, which is a collection of Sheer's work. Um, and it's really about about the it's about the absolute and the great space and spaciousness and the awakening and opening moments. Very big, open, loving, air-filled book. Very wide book. And now and now we're reading Zenki, which is a fascicle of, of Dogen's, which talks more about the Dharma position and the this moment in time and the arising of a thing. In this moment, is the universe which I think is really good for us right now to to notice the way our minds cast back and cast forward. I hear people talking about, well, the before time and the after time. And, and I'm just like, it's the now time. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are not in the before or the after time. And someday we will say, oh, this is after the pandemic. <clears throat> but that will also be the now time. So let's stick with what we are doing today.
1: So I love that you're studying these these texts. I partly, you know, just for my own self, I, I like to study them too. And I, I guess, you know, there's the, we're both in the Zen tradition and, you know, we have this sort of teaching that goes with us that we're not supposed to depend on text, that there's something beyond it, right? And so I'm wondering how you guide the students to Approach a, a certain text or sutra, uh, collection of writings, in a way that allows them to see what's after it rather than yeah, getting stuck well, on we, it.
0: You know, we have a seminary program. We've,
1: we've oh, do given you? Wow. a
0: great deal of great deal of thought to this over many years. Um, I mean, if you didn't study, you wouldn't know that Bodhi said there was nothing dependent on words right. and
1: letters. Right. So
0: you have to. Um, Quite some time ago, we realized that people in the Zen, in our Sangha, had really varied levels of, of understanding of history and text. And we, wanted, we set out to create a program that would, would give a shared body of knowledge. So everybody who went through this program would study certain fundamental topics and certain fundamental sutras and texts. And then there'd be some, you know, what you might call elective material as well. But the idea was that people who became seniors in our Sangha would all, we would know they all had this shared body of knowledge. They would know what the Lotus Sutra said and why it was important. They would know the basics of Dogen's life and teaching. They would know something about the Pali Canon and um, the early Sangha. I mean, that we would just, they would know our lineage Um, and how lineages developed and became different sects and so on. So we've been doing this for 20 years, and the idea has always been that it is both academic study, you read, you write, uh, you learn dates, you you study, and personal experience and um, confrontation with the teachings. So the, whatever you write needs to have you in it, needs to have practice in it. And some of the requirements in the seminary are very practice-based, not, not study-based. So like there's a, a methods of practice section where you have to go encounter Buddhist practice of a very different kind than ours. Go do slogan work in a Vajrayana setting, go, do, um, go to the Jodo Shinshu Church, you know, and study why they do it that way and what it means, and what's, and then feel it and feel it. So, our seminary includes both study and experience. And it's the same with a small study group. We read, we compare translations, we talk about what this word means, and then I want to know what it feels like and how do you experience that. And especially, Ian, what does it mean to come up against something that you don't understand? I, repeatedly <laughs> went through that as a young student i would hear a talk that meant i mean i knew it was in english but i had no idea what it was about and nobody would take the time to explain those topics to me those concepts i would just have to struggle with them and i'm a firm believer that it's it's really important in our practice to do things that you don't understand to not have it always be easy to try a practice that doesn't seem comfortable to confront a concept that you don't get, or that you don't, that you fervently disagree with, and just examine that. And, uh, you know, your the title of your podcast has bow in it. And the bow is the perfect, the perfect symbol of all of this, because people come into Zen practice, and they discover full prostration bowing, and either they love it or they hate it. Mm. But very few people have a neutral response. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> to <laughs> That's this true. idea. Yeah.
0: Um, and, you know, Suzuki said um, when he came to America that it was typical for lay people to do three bows. And he sort of got around to saying, we need to do nine bows because you guys don't want to do nine bows. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I immediately understood what he meant. It's because we resisted. But there's also people who they just love to bow. They don't want to get up, you know? So um, I can point even the newest student to that and say, "Here's a mirror, look in it." Um, bow. Just bow. And whatever you feel, however you experience that bow, it's a teaching. Whether it's easy, hard, uh, whether you flinch, whether you don't want to be seen, whatever it is, um, whether it's boring. Whatever it is, it will teach you. And the sutras will do that. And the act of studying will do that. And and this moment in the pandemic will do that if we just are willing to look at it.
1: Sort of just riffing off of that bow segment, like so. I live at the Cambridge Zen Center where there's about thirty of us here, and we do 108 bows in the morning.
0: Oh, I have quantum friends. Yeah. I have to- I've been I've I've been taught <laughs> I can't do it but <laughs> I know how you do it
1: so it's but for me it's so interesting because at some point you know we we're all in the Dharma room in the morning and there'll be periods of time where most of the people are bowing and some people have sort of physical exemptions because they're older and it's just harder you know. Other reasons. And then sometimes you'll just see it kind of like ripple through the room where people are like, I'm just not doing it today. (laughs) And they just do a half bow. (laughs) And it's so interesting to watch like how the mind gets played out in the body. Mm -hmm. It's just like, no, I'm not. And then it almost is like contagious through the room, Mm -hmm. watching people just be upset with this form.
0: Um, <laughs> yep. No, I see it. I mean, when you when you first become senior enough for whatever reason that you're going to sit in the front of the hall, right, whether mm-hmm. it's the first time you're ringing the bells or you're the head trainee or whatever, whatever the position is in your sangha, where suddenly you're not in a row facing the wall, but you're in the front watching the hall. Yeah. The first time they're like, oh, wow, I had no idea how much you could see what was going on. And you can tell what mood people are in, and what emotion they're feeling, and whether they're ups, whether they're angry or sad or, or excited, um, or sleepy, just by sitting there. And and yeah, if you look around during the bows, I see all kinds of variations, from very stiff and resentful,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: to you know, almost curled up in a fetal position, kind of bowing and the seniors for the most part are just getting up and getting down and not putting a whole lot of thought into it it's just doing it right you know you're just bowing you're trying not to name it or have an agenda or anything i hurt my ankle a year ago um and it's been a very very slowly healing injury and i haven't I'm just starting to do full bows again now, and I haven't been able to sit on the floor um, cross legged for more than a few minutes for a year, oh, wow. which is, um, you know, and I think 20 years ago, that would have been really, would have felt really bad, and I would have had a lot of energy and emotion around it. But this year was just kind of like, ah, I need a chair. Yep. Give me a chair. Uh, yeah, no, I can't sit on the floor. Sorry. And I, it didn't matter. It doesn't matter, um, and that just comes with time, you know that that acceptance of things as they are and not adding fuel to the fire. <laughs> we take the heat out of things as we practice. that's those are very old metaphors. The Buddha used those ideas too, of don't fan the flames. <laughs> that's all we're doing. And now, in this time, with you know how many, how many ways have we talked about this pandemic is raging like a forest fire and the protests are raging like a for I mean it's all everything's on fire on fire so let's just cool it down a little bit in ourselves
1: you know I remember the first time I saw a really senior teacher sit in a chair (laughs) It, it still sort of sticks in my mind and it was like such a huge relief for me I I know he was in a ton of pain and that's why he got it. But uh, when I knew I was in a ton of pain as well, and he was uh, what we call a Gita Pope's name or, you know, someone with Inca, but not a full transmission yet. And yeah, he got, there was, it was a teacher I really respect. And there was something so humanizing of it. It was, I don't know. Why? Yeah, and we're, you know, I'm just like
0: so on the other side of that. Yeah. Well, I think that's where he
1: was. (laughs) I was so new.
0: It's a, ours is a big Sangha. We have a lot of older people. We have younger people who've had injuries. We have lying down stations, Ian. Oh, wow. We, We don't just have chairs. We have good chairs. We have lying down stations. We have, you know, kneeling chairs. We have traditional benches and zafus and whatever you need, you can have it. Um, and dirt, we do a couple of retreats a year where it's open. There are no bells, you know, there's like a three hour period of meditation where you can take any seat you want at any time. So you sit as long as you want to sit, then you get up and walk or you stand or you go lie down and no bells. So people very quietly come and go from the hall.
1: That's fascinating.
0: It's called a, we call it a three robes retreat because the Buddha said at first, you know you wore one robe and then people were cold so well you could have two robes and then finally he said okay you can have three robes um but that's it you can only have three robes <laughs> so in the three robes retreat you take the position that you need and the interesting thing is not that it's it's not a slack retreat it's one of the hardest retreats of the year it's really hard for seniors who are used to the bells and the timekeeper and the structure of the retreat to suddenly have to self-manage their practice. And it's hard for beginners because they're looking at the seniors to tell them what to do and they don't want to have to make that decision themselves. So it just, I I think it's one of the quietest, deepest retreats we have. Um, And it, yeah, so that's senior practice to me. Is you're in charge of yourself. You're in charge of your practice, of your life, of your bow, of your seat, and your breath. It's
1: on you. So, Chico, there was a passage in one of the articles uh, I read about you that. Um, well, here's the passage. When my mother was dying, my siblings looked to me like, "Well, you can take care of her," and I. I had to say, no, I'm the daughter here. I have to be the daughter here. Sometimes no matter how much practical experience you have, you have to bow to the fact that this is not your role at this time. And just sort of to set up that quote, you know, you're know, you a palliative care nurse, so that's why your your siblings were looking to you for that. So there were a couple of pieces to this passage that really stood out to me. One, you know, in the school that I'm in, we are, we're always saying, you know, what's your situation, your relationship and your function, which is, yeah, your relationship isn't as a a nurse in this case, it's your mom, your function is, <laughs> my relationship is daughter, my function is <laughs> to act as a daughter. But then also, you had your own experiences of, you know, facing this mortality of, of your mom, and then, you know, perhaps your own and, and just the mortality that exists around us.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's important that we acknowledge that we're not immune. It doesn't matter how old we are or whether we're teachers or not, we're not immune to ordinary human pain. We don't practice, at least in my form of Zen, our ideal is not stoicism. Our ideal is authenticity, hmm. which is very different. I am. Not trying to achieve a state where I don't experience strong emotion. I'm trying to be a person who is not driven impulsively by strong emotion, who is not deceived by strong emotion, who is not embarrassed by strong emotion. So, one thing I've noticed in this time of the pandemic is a lot of people I know who were chugging along okay with their mortality and you know they've got their plans in place and they're not afraid to die and then all of a sudden holy shit i'm afraid to die <laughs> all of a sudden yeah. it you know it's like the rug got pulled out from under a lot of us when suddenly you realized oh my god i'm checking all the boxes for risk factors and i was just at the post office and and now i have a cough you know and it or whatever just suddenly Terror coming up for people who thought they were okay. And we are fragile, mortal, brief creatures, and we have no idea when it's going to happen. I think that's what it comes down to is have you really, really acknowledged your brief, fragile existence? And most of us think we have. (laughs) We think we have. And this virus is reminding us that. We haven't. And, and then I think of my son, I think of my grandchildren, and I can, I'll tell you right out, I have not fully acknowledged their mortality. Right. I am, you know, I'm working on it. I'm working on it.
1: There was another a piece from another essay, which, and just sort of bringing us back maybe full circle to the teachings that we hear when we're younger that mean something else when we're a little older. You know, there was this line about when you were a younger student, hearing someone say, "If you die once, you never have to die again." And the way the article read, anyway, it was suggesting that you you didn't quite know what that meant at the time, but maybe you had a deeper understanding of it. Yeah,
0: I I know what it means now, but um, and I feel like I have done that death. I without going into any of the mm-hmm. various terms we use for that kind of thing. Um, and in that sense, the root goes all the way down, and I feel just fundamentally rooted and solid and safe and fearless. And that's the ocean depths. There are still waves on the surface. Right. Um, the, what the work a lot of people have to do is that they're just caught up in these waves. They're, they're just being tossed about in the waves and they don't have an anchor. They don't have anything to hold them in place. And that's what the decades of practice can give you is even when I'm being tossed about in the waves, I'm held in place by a route that goes all the way down. So I feel fear. I feel anxiety. I feel sadness and loneliness and all of these things. But I feel them. I am, I am not them. I don't, I'm not deceived by them as somehow being me or being immutable or being uncontrollable. They are sensations. They can be very big sensations and very painful sensations as well as very you know emotions can be very pleasant sensations but and they can be really big but i don't mistake them for the truth so i can be afraid of dying at the same time that i'm really fearless
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Sally Chico Tisdale encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for Dharma Rain Zen Center at dharma-rain.org or sallytisdale.com. That's S-A-L-L-I-E-T-I-S-D-A-L-E.com. And I'll include links to both of those in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of our Zen study group for only $7 when using the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash study And don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.